House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. And uh, today, sitting in uh, sidelines, we got the game. We got That's Mr. right. Brian Emphasis Sermon. on the game. He's game. The game. I mean, game. Yes, it's Brian. And hello, nice to be back. It's the game. Yeah, you've been gone for a long time. I know, too long, too long. Don't take it personal, all right? Well, yeah. Actually, you can take it personal. It was mainly you, anyway. So. Well, of course, I always upset people. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot who you were. I mean, <laughs> That's why you're like, who's the game? Oh, yeah. It was the game. The game. Well, mm. so what's going on? So now you are back and in the crack, and everything's good. Um, yeah, that's definitely how you, how you think about it, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How's the Mind's Eye podcast going? Mind's Eye's, uh, it's on a little break right now because I am uh, writing a book. Uh, not, a little different from our guest tonight, uh, Garrick. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on that, and I'm almost done, so I really wanted to put all my effort I then, you know, I, I can't do like a million projects like you, Alan. I just don't have that skill level and that focus. I got to focus one at a time. That's because I'm all alone and I have nobody to love me. That's why I, I didn't want to say it, but I'm glad you did. Well, so sure. you're, you're rewriting different than Derek. You're writing instead about the Turkish pretender, you're writing about the Turkish bash. bash exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> I really go into the history of it. I'm sure Gary can talk a little bit more about the, the Turkish bath than I can. But, um, you know, I, I, want to, I, I like to learn from all, for sure. Of course. You're a watcher. Oh, you're a voyeur, <laughs> I think they called you. That's why it's a voyeur game. Um, Only with these two gentlemen right here, for sure. Yeah, well, gentle. There you go. Um, you obviously don't know our guest. So <laughs> our guest is the returning, and he's known as the gentle Garrick Jones. Thanks for being here, Jarek. Garrick. <laughs> My pleasure. Nice to be back again. G'day, fellas. G'day, yeah. Hello. So so what's going on? How's how's Garrick been the last little while? Like uh, all this well, stuff. To, today's been the first sort of real lull in my life for months. Um, I somehow managed with uh, editors changing around deadlines and publishers ended up sort of juggling four books at once. And one of them's just released last week, so I've just got a bit of a breathing space now. But it's been very, very busy. I, I really don't like multitasking that much. But yeah, apart from that, the COVID situation where I live in the small coastal town on the Great Barrier Reef hasn't really affected us much. We've only had one week of compulsory mask wearing in the past two years. Um, and I'm fully jabbed. Um, and so life goes on. Well, you were fully jabbed before the... <laughs> <laughs> Not for a number of years, Alan. <laughs> Especially when you two get it together, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, you know, so I, I always wonder about this with writers because it takes so much of you in the book, especially when you're when you're adding a lot of yourself to it, like in, in fictional stories as well as historical, and you're putting it together. Um, so none of this sort of has bothered you the last year or so, and now with Russia and everything going on. Oh, yeah, well, exactly. Incredibly, that this latest book that's just come out, The Servants of the Crown, um, The Turkish Pretender, is based in 1855 in London at the end of the Crimean War. And it's about, it has lots to do with Russians and the Crimea, the timely. And there's mention of Ukraine in it as well. And, of course, I wrote this book, five years ago, so there was a bit of prescience there. Um, 
Yeah, it's been on my mind when I was uh, checking the final proof, uh, which was just about the time that the first invasion started. It uh, it resonated quite a bit. Yeah, it's something that never, I, I don't know, it just never ends, does it? You know, uh, it's something you're writing about that happened so long ago is still really happening now. Yeah, and of course then everybody says, oh, you're riding the wave of a, riding the wave of a popular yeah. thing and you have to try to explain, well, no, this was written, book was written in um, to 2017, you know, yeah. not yesterday. Books don't write themselves unless you're incredibly prolific in a matter of weeks. I mean, my books usually take uh, about three months for the first draft and probably about a year after I've written the first draft before they say they get to the publisher, you know. Yeah. Well, if you were writing the wave, you'd, you'd throw a pandemic in there. Oh, exactly. And I'm a bit sick of pandemic books, to be honest. Just, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Love in the pandemic. If I, I'm going to barf if I hear one more. Yeah. Read one more <laughs> book about that. Yeah, I can't. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. I just picked up, picked up a book I hadn't read for years and years. There used to be a Men on Men series, which was a whole collection of short stories. I don't remember it. Published in the 80s and 90s. And I was just reading Men on Men 3. And it was all about the AIDS crisis. And, of course, we don't really think about that anymore. Um, but every book written by gay people and about gay people was about death Yeah. in that period. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the same now. But the thing is, it's crazy now because... Every time I go to, to put on Netflix or something like that or streaming, you know, you go through 10 or 20 movies and it's some sort of end of the world pandemic, virus, oh, yeah. disease, and, oh, or zombie. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, well, it's, you know. As asteroids, that's the other one. Yeah. Crushing into Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the end. Gloom and doom. Yep. You know. Yep. Uh, so, okay, what brought you to, to write this book? Uh, this is a really interesting story, and I hope it doesn't get too boring. Um, but when I was, my first book was published with uh, Manifold Press in the UK, I got to meet a whole lot of um, interesting young UK writers and older UK writers. And um, I was introduced to one particular writer who was very, very interesting. We spent a lot of time chatting in a, a forum and he was a young disabled man and just getting into writing and asked me if, if I'd be interested in co-writing a book as an exercise. I said, sure, you're. And we wrote, we wrote this book, um, it was, which was called Undercurrents in those days. And uh, I sent the book to the publisher, and who was not real happy with it, said it just sounded like, read like two different people writing um, separately. And I quite agreed. But just at that point, um, it was discovered that this particular young man had been catfishing us, including the publisher, and wasn't actually a young disabled man in a wheelchair, but an older woman in her 60s in a wheelchair pretending to be a man. <laughs> Alan so can it, obviously it, relate to that, but, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, my God. Well, it was a huge shock because, you know, in the course of the conversation over, over the year that we've been writing it, there was all sorts of, like, quite um, intimate exchange. This wasn't sexual, but talking about very private things and experiences, and I suddenly realised you know, I'd been I'd been pulled into this conversation in some sort of vicarious enjoyment by this older woman pretending to be a young man. I, I never was interested in flirting or anything like that, but just disclosing personal details because you know this young guy said he'd never had any sexual experiences and wanted to know what X was like and X. So it was really really creepy. So eventually the publisher got the rights back and. 
I retained the rights to the whole book and stuck it away in a cupboard and ignored at me because I really found the, the subject and the period interesting. So last year I decided to rewrite the whole thing in my own words. I changed all the characters. I kept the basic plot the same. Um, and then when I submitted to the publisher, they absolutely loved it. So that just came out last week. But it was a very rough, rough time. Left me feeling really dirty for a long time afterwards. Uh, that's a lot to chew on that right there. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, and I want to come back to the book in a little bit, but it just because it's such a crazy story. Um, you never had any indication that that never, never at all. Wow. The only indication I ever had was that we were talking about, um, the Napoleonic Wars and I asked in a, uh, an email, as you do, I asked in an email, you know, whether he'd ever seen the Hornblower series with Yoan Griffith um, and said no. And I said, well, I'm really, I'd love to send you a copy for, um, uh, for Christmas. And he said, oh, we haven't got a post box with miles away from the post office. Or so I sent it to a friend and I should have twigged, twigged then that there was something wrong going on. And how did how, 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 how you get reached out to by this person? Just because it's just like, it's so well, wild it was, to me. It, How'd you connect? It was, in this, it was in this chat room. We're talking about writing. And it, this young guy was saying he was just starting out and um, just wanted to, an exercise. I thought it would be a really good exercise for me seeing how other people write because I was relatively new to writing myself. Um, and I just wanted to see how another author's mind thought. And, but I really liked the story, and although I didn't always agree with what he wrote, I thought, well, you know, let's see what the publisher thinks, and because I didn't like it. And it's funny because you still refer to that person as a as a he as a, as him, but you, knowing it's a woman, whatever happened yeah, to this person? <laughs> I have no idea, but they were ostracised from the writer community. It was one of those big scandals. Do you remember Josh Lanyon, the big scandal with Josh Lanyon, who? Wrote, writes a lot of crime novels um, and actually, you know, catfished the whole writing community by saying, read books written by a man about men and actually turned out to be a woman, you know. Oh. And he's still writing and as a woman and has been accepted by the gay romance community, which is mostly women readers anyway. <laughs> but, um, wow. Yeah, that's, that's their story. I mean, they write really well, but that whole idea of pretending to be something that you aren't doesn't sit well on my shoulders. No, 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 that's... Uh, and you can usually pretty well tell if there's a sex scene. You, once you start reading, you go, no, no, guys don't do that. I mean, we do a lot. <laughs> How dare you? But we don't do that. <laughs> but we don't do that. It was way too <laughs> tender. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, <laughs> no, I wrote to one woman, I said, oh, you might have to edit this out. I said, just, you know, when you go home, just ask your husband to stick it in your... How dare you? ...in the ironing with no preparation and see how you think it feels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just... Anyway, so that was, this experience of writing, it was, um, it was pretty cathartic at the time because I thought to myself, geez, I, I must be really getting old to be hoodwinked for such a long, long time. But the, the, the writing was so... Um, it was so engaging in a way that made me feel really sorry for this person who I thought was a young guy in a wheelchair, mm. you know. When I rewrote it, it was a cleansing process. I think I wrote a much, much better story. Um, and uh, it was all in my own voice, of course, which makes makes the book cohesive, makes it coherent from the beginning to end, so it doesn't feel like a whole lot of chopped-up dialogues written by a committee. Right. 
Right. Right. So, so let's let's tell the listeners what is the basic premise of the book. Uh, the basic premise of the book is um, a rumor that was going around um, during Queen Victoria's reign that um, her father had entered into a morganatic marriage. That means a marriage of a noble person with a baseborn person, and had fathered a son. Um, and then when uh, his father, George III, had found out, dissolved the marriage, and the child had been spirited away. So the, the, the premise behind this story is this, this clique of disaffected uh, English noblemen and Irishmen who were really unhappy with a woman on the throne, and Queen Victoria was husband was very, very unpopular in the 19th in the 1850s, and they hatched this plot to bring this child, the pretender, who'd been brought up in Turkey, and overthrow the throne and install him um, as the king, as a puppet king, uh, because the way they brought him up was without him learning English, um, only being able to speak in French and Russian, and they were going to rule him, rule through him. So that's the premise of the story. But it's actually about a, a group of four young men called the Brothers who grew up together and who, two of whom have grew up together and the other two who they met in their teenage years um, who've been friends for 20 years and who two of them work for the Foreign Secretary as what I call intelligences, which is a Victorian equivalent of spies. And they, this group of the four, are tasked with uncovering the plot, finding out who's behind it, and stopping the pretender from arriving in uh, London so that the plot to overthrow Queen Victoria can be foiled. When you put this together, um, how do you decide what you're going to do with the story? Like there's, there's truth, there's history, and then there's fiction. How do, you, well, how do you draw that line? It all has to be based on, on historical accuracy. That's the way that I write. When I write, I probably, the majority of my time is research, researching before I put a word on the page. So I, work, I did a lot of research on London in the 1850s, the hospital system, um, the, you know, just what people did, the, a lot of research into the aristocracy and the use of titles and deference and who went where, who was living where, what sort of jobs were available. And because it revolves around a major uh, British shipping um, line, a lot of research into um, goods and traffic by clipper and early steamboat. Uh, so once I got that all uh, worked out and I had all the facts in place, then I was able to slot the story into around those historical facts. Because there's nothing worse than reading something where you go, oh, no, that couldn't have possibly happened because on that date, Fred Bloggs was in, I don't know, wherever. Yeah. When you get all the facts together and you've got it all laid out, kind of the basically what's going on, how do you decide where you're going to bring the story to or what, what you're going to tell in the story? Well, I always have an idea of what the plot is before I start. Um, and I'm a pantser. You know what that means? Oh, yeah, by the seat of the pants. Yeah, I'm a pantser. So I, uh, I always have a beginning in my mind, I have an end in my mind, and I have the denouement or the big action crisis scene in my mind before I start. So it's a, I, that somehow, as I'm writing, it always leads me to those points and where I place the action and where I place the human interest or where I slot little bits of history into the to the dialogue without it being an information dump. Um, it, I don't know, it's sort of a, a reasonably natural process for me. Yeah. Although it's not, I wouldn't say it's easy. 
No, no, it wouldn't be. Uh, you know, and I never wear pants myself, so I'm not a pantser. <laughs> he's a deep answer. He's a deep answer. Yeah. yeah. No, I. Well, I live in tropical Queensland, and you can imagine what life's like up here. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's why I asked if we were doing video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. I missed my chance. We can switch over. We can yeah. easily switch over. Mm-hmm. Get, get the TV going. Yeah. You know, mystery TV. We'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah, but I, I always find it interesting that um, you put together a story and, and it's de- it's centered on the truth. But when you say human interest, so you you do you have an um, how do you say kind of a, something you want to get across to people like um, uh, a all, subtext? Always, yeah. always the subtext with all of my books, and this is the ninth one I've had published. I'm a very, very lucky writer. Uh, and not, my basic uh, ideal in all of my books is to demonstrate that gay men are not a race apart. We just are like any other man in the world. The only difference is that we might go home to a, a partner of the same sex. We can be bricklayers, we can be judges, we can be labourers, we can be whatever you want to call it. And we don't define ourselves by sexuality, most of us. We just happen to be gay. And that's what I try to put in my books, the normality of most of the gay men's lives in the world. And I translate that historically as well uh, as I'm writing. How how do you feel like the um, modern-day gay community finds that? Because everybody's so into identifying themselves as know, and labeling yeah. and stuff like I, you know because i'm i'm like in in your age category and i'm and i'm always sort of I, you know i always wonder why everyone's so so well i suppose in being brought up in the you know i grew up in the 1950s where there was a period where people knew other people were gay but you never actually talked about it in fact no one ever talked about their personal life because it was considered bad manners you know, you didn't, if you started talking about somebody's personal life, you were branded a gossip and people would not like you much. So also gay men during that in the 1950s and the early 1960s, we learned to compartmentalise our lives, living double identities, if you like. And it was no great hardship. I suppose modern people think it as some sort of like, oh, my God, it must have been terrible walking around with your collar pulled up and your hat over your eyes so nobody recognised you. It wasn't like that. You just learned to behave in different ways, like speaking two languages. You know, you speak English at home, you speak Italian out in the community if you live in Italy. That's just part of our the way that we're brought up. But this whole identity of the gay community. Somebody once said to me, we just had the, the Mardi Gras here, the Sydney Mardi Gras, and somebody once said to me, for every single guy on one of those floats, and there must be thousands of them, there's 20 or 30 other guys out there living in the community who don't actually think about, I don't, I don't identify themselves with the gay community. There's just their sexuality that differs. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that the visible gay community is really the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Because a lot of people in society, to him, it's, it's no great thing. The fact that they happen to love another man or they happen to like sleeping with a, other guys, the same with women as well. If they have a partner or they like sleeping with somebody of the same sex, it doesn't define who they are. It's just you know, part of their lives. So that's what I try to do in every book I've written, is just to describe that normality of life of, of people who don't necessarily identify as within the community in inverted commas. How do you tackle that? Like, how do you do that with, um, without 
trying to emphasize on the gay parts of the people, but yet let them know they're gay. Like what? What you just well, if you read any detective novel written by anybody in the whole of history, you write it exactly the same, except that the protagonist might have a boyfriend. Um, in my Clyde Smith mystery series, which we've just we've I've already you've already interviewed me about, um, Clyde's just a, a, an ex-war veteran. He's been a cop, and now he's working as a private detective. He has connections through his close circle of friends who are gay men um, to, you know, what, what gay life's like. But there's, at those days, in the 1950s, there weren't gay clubs. There weren't, not in Australia. I know there were gay bars and stuff in the US, but and we didn't have um, bathhouses in the same way that you did in the States all the way through. We had Turkish baths, but that was completely sort of different thing, and they were never pick-up places. So he just goes about his life, and it's just like a regular detective crime fiction book, except he's got a boyfriend. Right, right. Well, you know, I, I think that um, you know, when you read um, Brian's book, you'll realize that there was a pickup joint in the Turkish book. Yes, yes, we did. We, we went <laughs> yeah. over this. Yeah. You know, that's how I inject my life into my own <laughs> book, personally. Uh, yeah. What about you? I mean, how do you... Uh, inject like you know outside of you know getting through this idea you know the normality of of being gay and and putting that into your books how do you inject your own personal life into it outside of that aspect uh in many many ways there's um i wrote a uh, series my first book published was a book called the boys of bullaroo which is a collection of six short stories spanning six decades in the 20th century and each one of them is about um about different aspects of men at war or in between the wars and forming friendships and meeting other guys and falling in love. And nearly every one of those six stories has something autobiographical in it. In fact, the last story in it is basically the story of me meeting my, the great love of my life, who was an American um, soldier on R&R in 1966 on the beach in Sydney. So, but I, I made a, I put that in the story. I think it's really, you know, I've had a very interesting life. I had 30 years as a professional opera singing all, all over the world. Um, I, when I left that, I went into lecturing in university in history. So I try to, I've had a lot of experiences and I try to bleed those into my stories to give it some, some sense of reality and grounding so that it's not all just fiction, but there's some truth behind. See, for example, I never write about any place that I've never lived in or visited for any, um, haven't well, spent any amount of time in. I just don't think that that's right. Yeah, there's definitely a feel. There's something you pick up when you go to these places. Oh, for sure. You've only got to go in um, any country in the world and uh, and have a look what the regular c- cup of coffee is. And I mean, it's not the same in any country in the whole wide world. You just realise that every every culture has something completely different to it. So when I read some of your books and I see the the gay opera singer um, turned writer, that is like a that is I, it's pretty obvious that that is you, not just a character. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we fact, can expect that one. Yeah, yeah please. I did one of my really popular books is a book, uh, it's a theatre m- murder mystery set in 1902, in which I talk about it, during the crime investigation and everything. I talk about what it's like to be a performer and what it's like backstage, what it's like to be in the dressing room, what it's like when you're putting your makeup on or trying your costumes on, what it's like to rehearse, what it's like standing backstage and watching all the scenery move. Um, 
And people found that really, really fascinating because there's not much out there about that. And also having a gay protagonist and a murder mystery, it's, it's been very, very popular, that book. He's made plenty of men sing. There's lots of <laughs> you reverse the role. I like yeah. it. All over yeah. YouTube, he's got them all <laughs> screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, hmm. yeah, this, um, interestingly enough, this is slightly uh, tangential. In the course of writing, I've, I've uh, worked with four really, really, really amazing editors. I was having a discussion this morning with my new editor in the UK, Nick Taylor, about um, how finding not necessarily finding an editor but finding the editor for you is so important because when you actually write a book you need somebody who needs to get what you're about and and not try to make it their version of your book so that's been a really interesting process all the way along I've been so fortunate to have had four amazing editors two of whom um, I still work with Nick, who's going to be editing my next Clyde Smith book, which goes to him tomorrow to come out in October, and Linda McQueen, who's the editor for Yale University Press in London, um, who edits my World War II series. Just, it's just reassuring to get that, um, what do you call it, so like an iron fist in a velvet glove treatment? Um, and yeah. that really pushes any writer on to, to feel validated in their craft. So you you must be fascinated with the history and stuff. What's what's your favorite era, like 1900s? Um, my favorite era, I suppose, is the 1950s because that's the era in which I grew up, surrounded by a whole lot of men who were basically what I call ruined men who came back from the war and put on smiles and tried to be happy but were uh, like just traumatized inside. My whole life was as a young man was brought about these guys who would get in, you know, start punching each other up. I mean, had a couple of beers to try and, you know, get rid of the violence. I'm really fascinated by that era of the new world where, where everything old was thrown out. We're going to have a complete new society after the Second World War. But the whole thing staffed, if you want to say the word, or led by these ruined guys who, who just had all of this. How dare you! Side that they were told to just smile and get on with. Get on with life. Get married, no matter what you did. I've just finished reading um, for the third time Berabe's book, uh, Coming Out Under Fire, which is his uh, book about the American military and gay people during the Second World War. And that whole thing of all these guys coming back and just getting married because they had to when they're basically gay. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by that, that period because I didn't understand it as a kid, but as I got older I understood you know, what these guys were going through. And do you think, like, the pendulum has swung to the opposite way? Um, and, you know, with a generational difference, you know, they, they had to get married, and now, obviously, things are, people are more open. I mean, what type of uh, impact do you think that I has? I think there's That's still a lot of that going on. I've got a friend uh, who, five years ago, after 40 years of marriage, decided when the kids left home, you know, and grandchildren and stuff, suddenly decided he, he'd been gay his whole life and left his wife. And I think, well... Why the hell? And he said to me, I got married because that was what was expected of me. Um, it still goes on. You still get guys. I mean, I, I, I did a lot of, um, and I were talking about this when I was talking about my book, Wheelchair, when I did a lot of research with vets and cops and stuff like that about, um, about what do you call it, uh, beats? Is that the word? Um, places where men pick, men pick each other up. 
Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Alan would know that. You know. Cruising yeah. places, right. So, and he, he said, one of the guys said to me, most of the guys that he meets in these parks and places are all married guys. So hmm. there's, there's still a lot going on. I don't think a lot of that's progressed. I think the awareness of gay people has moved on a lot and generally society's been accepting, but I think a lot of men still struggle with the, the notions of what it is to be a man, with the notions of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of men that live the, let's say, the standard lifestyle. They're, they're, you know, married and kids and that, but they, it's it's part of who they believe they should be. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's been in the military and who will um, be really, really super honest will, uh, especially, I don't know about these days, but people in places of war or conflict or something will tell you that there are moments when they have been tempted if or not have given in. You, do you think that shame that, you know, I guess, you know, even though it's still there in depending on the part of your world, but do you think that shame that, that was given to gay men, you know, gay people, um, has now been transferred to those who identify as trans and, and, and are trans? Uh, look, I think there's just, I think we have a circle of hate. Um, mm. well, every decade there's somebody new to hate. Uh, mm. I just, mm. There's a whole lot of, you know... As a Jewish man, I get it, trust yeah. me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's the worst thing um, the, about society? Somebody asks a question and my answer is uh, enforced religion. I mean, people should be choose to uh, be free to choose what they worship and not to proselytize and not to judge other people. What goes on in the USA? I mean, we sit here and shake our heads so often about, you know, stuff that goes in on in the name of so-called mm -hmm. Christianity, which has actually got nothing to do with Christianity at all. It's about, I don't know what it's about, giving people an opportunity to hate other people. And I suppose yeah. it goes for all religions. I shouldn't just pick on... Christians, but you know we see hate everywhere. It's it's cyclical. It moves from one subject to another. Uh, after trans people, it'll probably revolve to I don't know what's left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just goes back and forth. We'll go back to the Jews. Mm -hmm. hope right, we're always there. Don't worry. <laughs> we're always one stick down for sure. <laughs> I mean, why, why define a person? by what they do and not by who they are. Mm -hmm. That's also something that I try to write about, that people get attracted to other people by who they are, not by what they look like, not by what they do. You know, it's, it's what we fall in love with people properly. You know, it's because of the, who the people are. Otherwise, you wouldn't get, you know, you go see some really, really amazingly good-looking guy with a really maybe not so glamorous looking woman, but they get together not because of what, the way each other looks, but because of the way that they feel about each other, who that person is. There should be a lot more of that in this world. We should get rid of reality TV, put the Kardashians in the wood chipper and, and mm -hmm. start, start to talk about, you know, real people. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. Well, you know. Chipper. Yeah. We Aussies, we say it as it is. 
Is that because of the history there? Because you guys, you know, uh, you know, modern era post Aborigine, uh, you know, because obviously I think most people are familiar with that it was established as a penal colony. Do you think that's yeah. what that stems from? Uh, that, that, look, that, that, most, that most certainly. But we have a thing called, I'm not sure if you, you um, know about it, but you need to probably read up. It's called the tall poppy syndrome, which means we don't like people who stick their heads up above everybody else. For mm-hmm. example, um, it's really considered bad luck to not bad luck. It's considered uh, really down class to blow your own trumpet. So that whole um, thing of show flaunting money and getting people to judge you by your wealth or your standing doesn't sit well with us. So we we really like to take the piss out of people. You should. Our prime minister is getting so much rubbish at the moment, quite publicly. You know, called a liar in public and stuff like that. That would probably not happen in many other countries in the world. Um, but we do. For what though? What, what is he getting called out for specifically? Oh, don't start me. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the engine. I just let yeah. you go. You know? Well, if you have a look at the. I don't know if you know. We did a huge hundred billion dollar deal with the French for submarines. Right, um, right. which the Australian government cancelled. And Macron, when he was asked, he said, um, he said, we didn't get any notice. And he said, do you think the Australian Prime Minister lied to you? And he said, I don't think. I know he did. And so that's now, he's, that's one of the things. And plus, he does love to tell lies, our Prime Minister, and he's caught out on so many of them. And even when he's confronted with the truth, he still disavows it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds like a politician to me. Yeah. Well, it's a right-wing politician, you know. We have this fashion all over the world of our prime minister. Uh, you had Trump, Boris Johnson, Bolsonaro, the guy in, in um, Belarus, whose name I can't think of. Yeah. You know, these dictators all over the world who just, um, you know, just blurt out untruths, and they get away with it. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how how it, you can get away with it, you know. I yeah. It makes no sense. Um, you take the characters in this book, like in The Servants of the Crown, for instance. Um, how, how do you develop them when they're already dead? Like, this is a long time ago. Uh, how, do you, how do you fill in the blanks? Like, what's your method? Well, I do a lot of research about um, domestic life in the period that I'm writing in. So, for example, there's... If you look at, um, do you know about Mrs. Beaton's cookbook? You must have heard of that. Yeah. No? Yep. For example, she has a huge section about how the lady of the house should act, what the maid does, what the valet does, what the footman do, you know, what the scullery maid does. So just reading through that in a cookbook gives you a pretty good idea of how about an aristocratic household works. And then you'd read a lot of literature of the period about the relationships between the aristocracy, the middle class and the, and the working class. And then you start to formulate what this person might be expected to do, which gives you a pretty good idea of the way they're going to travel through the book. In this particular book, the main character um, is the eldest son of a third son, and he isn't expected to inherit anything, and by total misfortune inherits a a baronessy when he's not prepared for it and has to take over a huge global shipping company and a title and huge houses, and he really doesn't want it. So it's not a book about, oh, this is great, isn't this fantastic, we'll make this guy into a bright, shining star. It's about his journey of struggling with moving into a different class of society and not wanting it. Yeah, you know, I I, I always find that to be the most interesting. How How do you think it's when you, now that you've published the book, how do you think it's changed you? 
it's it's actually taken a huge weight of my shoulders because, as I told you before, I can't tell you how much that awful episode affected me. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty grown-up man. I've been on the earth a long time. I hate being taken for a ride, and I really, really was. So writing that book actually sort of cleansed that whole episode out of my life. It also gave me um, a lot of satisfaction of writing in in a style that I don't normally write in. It's sort of like semi-Dickensian style, using the language and the form of syntax and vocabulary that was used in the 1850s. Um, and to try to form really relationships as they might have been through the norms of society, what was expected in society. Um, and that was a real, and also discovering what it was like to be a gay man during that period. There's quite a lot of literature come out about that recently, including a whole book about Victorians and their servants and sexuality. So, you know, that research just made me feel good. I love researching, so that was like a tick in the box for me, having done that. You know, one thing that I find curious about that time, now this is long before um, gays were even legal. You know, there was, a, there was the mindset that being homosexual, you were probably sick mentally and you needed help um, or you should just be put away in, in jail and, and, you know, you're something bad no matter what point of view it was. So with that being in the world that you live in, did, did they ever have the concept or the idea of having a relationship with another man? Not of course sex. they did. What, I, what I'm trying to get at is how would they see it um, in their well, mind? They, they basically wouldn't talk about it for a start in sort of aristocratic circles. And even in aristocratic circles, if they knew somebody was gay or queer or anything, they just like accepted it as long as they behaved properly. They might, uh, they might tut-tut you know, to their spouse, but they would never, ever talk about it. And people, I mean, this is a period where men had two or three mistresses, remember? They got married uh, for money, for dowries, or they, you know, they, the whole concept of marrying for love was not a great thing then. It might have been written about in Jane Austen's book, but it was an expectation of marrying within your class to further the line. And most people got married to somebody they never knew, really knew. And they had men had mistresses. They went to brothels. They went to Molly houses, which was a gay brothel. Um, there were millions of those around. Um, so it was really well understood. And in the working classes and the poor class, poor classes, of course, it was just like it was during the Depression for a lot of, a lot of men. That a lot of straight married men who didn't have any money went out and stood on the curb and waited for some guy to come and pick them up and give them a blow. Oh, my. Job in their car. But that's where our concept of the masculine gay man comes from. It's that period of the, of the Depression from America where all of a sudden so-called straight men started, you know, being available yeah. for sex, for money. But, you know, the same thing happened in Victorian England. There's... There's all sorts of scandals about um, gay bordellos where members of the aristocracy were caught. And, of course, quite famous long-standing uh, relationships between the earls and dukes with their valet, who was their personal manservant. It was the way that they managed to continue to keep a thriving relationship going was having a close personal uh, servant, where they couldn't have with another member of the aristocracy, for example. Who's the most famous person of that era 
Well, yeah, I knew, that I, we know now is gay, you know. I knew you were going to ask me that, but I'll have to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a book um, called Victorian Their Servants in Sexuality. It's in the other room. I could go and drag it out if you like. But there is quite a famous, uh, mm. I think he was an earl, and his relationship with his valet was very, very long, you know, right throughout their lives, and everybody knew about it. But they wouldn't, uh, in their mind, they wouldn't be thinking like marriage. No, I think that they probably would have liked to. No, I think they probably would have liked to. You see, up until the, well, a lot of people don't, well, I can't see this book, I'm sitting right near my um, bookcase. There's a book about um, same-sex relationships within the church, um, and here it is. It's called... Um, the Marriage of Likeness by John Boswell. It's a very, very good, interesting book, and it's subtitled Same-Sex Unions in Pre-Modern Europe. And in that book, you read about a whole lot of religious um, ceremonies that were uh, performed right up until the 14th century, solemnizing relationships between men. That's a, something that people don't realise, that, you know, the... The church was, you know, giving blessings to gay marriages up until the 13th or 14th centuries. Hmm. Um, so, you, you know, where did it change? I mean, we look back at ancient Greek, ancient Roman societies where, you know, men slept with their slaves, um, their male slaves, and they had relationships with each other. Where, where did it all change? And I, I hate to say it's this prevalence of sort of pure botanical Christian ethic I can't comment on Judaism or Islam because I don't know much about that. Um, but if it's based on Old Testament um, stuff, then I probably will think it's pretty um, frowned upon. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. For some reason, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, you know. I mean, is there, is there any actual place in the Bible where it's, that, where it's like anti-gay? Like, uh, you know, I, not, I haven't read the New Testament, you know, or anything like that. Not, not in the Old Testament. In the, yeah. in the New Testament is. But we have, to my mind, and this is probably going to create a whole, probably a whole, whole lot of hate mail, but there was a Council of Nicaea, I think it was 430-something or other, um, 400 years after the death of Christ, where a whole lot of church people got together and they decided what was going to be in the Bible. Right. So the Bible was written by a whole lot of blokes 400 years after mm-hmm. Jesus lived. And there were certain books from the Bible cut because they didn't fit in with male patriarchal ideas. There's a book of Mary Magdalene, for example. So women didn't get a look in. Um, and who knows? We, I don't know if there were any first, I don't know if there were any first, like, documents of the letters of St. Paul. I don't, we have a document actually written in his handwriting, and he's the one who talks about... Uh, you know, men laying together in abominations. I may be wrong. I may have got that all muddled up, but um, still goes on. I mean, go out to, if you're a farmer, go out into any field and you see cows jumping on each other and bulls jumping on each other and stuff. It's part of nature, homosexuality. It's not a, a learned thing. It's a genetic thing. That's my two cents worth. I'm all excited here. Um, <laughs> so now our, um, let's talk about people getting a hold of you. And all the hate mail goes to you. So how is it <laughs> yeah. people contact you? Uh, through my website, which is just garrickjones, one word, .com.au. And uh, there's a, um, on, the, on my website, there's a, a link of how you can get in touch with me, write emails <laughs> to me. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Um, where else? Oh, well. Grinder. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I saw a wonderful mug the other day, um, um, which had on it, uh, I met your dad on Grinder, And I was wondering, if I could buy who do I know I could buy that and send that to? <laughs> Boy, you have to be careful there. <laughs> Well, if you do get some hate mail, I've learned that if, if, as, uh, half the, if as many people hate you as they do love you, you're probably actually doing something right and stuff. Okay. wrong. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I just, I, I, the worst review I, I've, I've had two, I'm very, very, very lucky again, not only getting published so much, but uh, having really, really good reviews. Um, but I, the two worst reviews I've ever had was somebody who bought The Boys of Bullaroo, which is all about the war and guys fighting together who gave it one star and said this book is full of homosexuals i thought like saying read the oh my blurb you idiot (laughs) (laughs) and the other one was about a woman who wrote um a a short story that was published by uh manifold press um actually said in canada and it's called oh canada the, the story um and she wrote and she said i didn't like this story it's too male wow then you write, I didn't like this reviewer. It's too female. Oh. You go, what goes through these people's minds? What do they do? They look at the picture and go, oh, I'll buy that book because it's got a pretty cover. That is my idea is the very, very worst um, reason for buying a book. You know, the, yeah. re- the reason for buying a book is what what's between the front cover and the back cover. Well. And you can <laughs> – and a good, a good cover helps, but, you know – if you buy a book and people can't string three words together, what's going to make you buy another book by that writer? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's know, a reason why they don't put Alan on picture on on the books. Yeah, unless they powder my forehead. <laughs> I liked your new picture, Alan. I thought it was really good. Oh, really nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know what Brian looks at, but I'll go and stalk him in a minute. Well, he's, <laughs> he, no. Yeah, I don't want you obsessing over me. Come yeah, on, he's, he's, <laughs> he's the young, good-looking man. You know, he is no. I, I have I have one patch of hair left, so I'm, I technically, you know, I guess maybe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the game. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so up and coming stuff. Can I talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say, what's what's so, coming next? Yeah. So the third Clyde Smith detective stories, which is set in 1957 in Sydney, um, goes to the air data on this Saturday, and so that should hit the shelves in October. And then the third book in my World War Two stories goes to the other editor in. Um, um, when is it? When in August, and that'll be out early next year. And I have a short stir- story in an anthology of gay mysteries um, based on holidays and July, which will come out in the middle of the year. Um, and of course, me being me, I wrote to the editor and I said, "We don't have any holidays in Australia in July." He said, "I write about something that's really um, that you could twist about." So what did I do? I wrote a story uh, set in 1947 about a young man who is given a forced-in holiday from work because he's having a bit of a nervous breakdown after the war and told to go on a holiday. So he goes to Darwin to discover what happens to his best mate who was presumably killed during the bombing of Darwin in 1942 and then discovers this big murder mystery in it. So everybody's really, really loved that, who did the beta reading and editors and the publishers. So that'll come out in the middle of the year. Wow. With, I, I, including... Such well-known authors as uh, Michael Narva, people like that, Frank Butterfield, Brad Shreve, all um, I'll be very happy to be part of that collection. 
Wow. And mind you, that book took me, that short story, 18,000 words, took me about three months of research to get right because a lot of the material is still classified. Um, we People don't realise that the bombing of Darwin, Darwin uh, there were more planes, more bombs, more ships sunk than Pearl Harbour. Yeah. Uh, uh, people don't realise that. The, the, it was the largest att- um, bombing attack on any city um, at the time in 1942 in the world, and that included Coventry in Britain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just saw a little documentary show on that, actually, probably probably a month ago. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, it was the it was the anniversary of it. I think the seventy it must have been the seventieth anniversary. Yeah, yeah, um, or eightieth anniversary, forty two two thousand twenty two. Yeah, that's so, why you're uh, a writer, yeah, not a mathematician. Yeah, um, yeah, fascinating part of history. Hmm. So, and I've also visited Darwin quite a lot. I have a a good pal who lives there, and he did a beta read for me just to make sure I get all the places right and all of the how long it take, took to travel. But it's, I think it's a really good murder mystery. It's, um, and it's also one, the first erotic book I've ri- with eroticism and I've written in six mm. years. So that was, that was actually quite fun to write. I'd forgotten how much I like writing nitty-gritty scenes. So how did <laughs> Although they're, they're not like other people's nitty-gritty scenes. It's all comparative. <laughs> yeah, of course, right. But so when you're doing that, would you do have to get in practice and get, get someone over and sort of work it out, the details? <laughs> <laughs> no, my memory isn't that bad. <laughs> well, you know, you might want to try some new things or see if certain things could work. And I don't know. I'm just, Trying to help out. He's volunteering, yeah. is what he's saying. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm just no. I'm just trying to help out. I'm I'm there. I'm the writers. I'm the help for the writers. I'm the helping. You're the muse for sure. And, and look, can I give a general warning um, to perhaps female writers who write uh, gay fiction? And there's a lot about. Don't base what we do by watching porn. Mm. Please don't don't base anything. It doesn't have to be gay. Just oh, anything. God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 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 just it. I I hear a lot of things like that. Um, in yeah. Now get an editor. Get get. Uh, uh, ask your best gay friend to read it and go. You know, is this possible? Is it possible to do this X thing on the first date? The answer is pretty usually no. Yeah. 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 yeah but you have to wonder what. Um, because I hear. Um, a lot of the male male books like that have female readers as the primary. Well, it is the the, the male to male romance category is basically um, all all women, a few men, but writing for other women. Um, so that, that's the way that that's evolved. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. It, you know, for, for me, it doesn't interest me. But now, well, but- look. So I think some of the some of the stories I've read are read are really really good, but they're not the ones that have a lot of sex scenes in them because that's usually where it, it falls down. And look, honestly, you know yourself, men relate to each other in a completely different way than men and women relate to each other. I, I tried to explain it to somebody once. It's like pieces of a jigsaw. You know, have, you know, you have the indentation and then the bit that sticks out that fit together. That's male-female thing. But when you've got two bits that stick out together or two indentations that bump up together, there's a lot more negotiation because men, we're not brought up with um, expectations of how we're supposed to behave in relationships the way that men and women are, that the women do the, have the babies, maybe do the most of the housework and the guys, you know, go out to work and stuff. You've got two, 
two guys having to always continually work out who does what, make negotiating about the relationships. Because if there are two men, we have testosterone. So there's all those other sorts of things that have to be negotiated. So I think that's the big difference uh, about really writing uh, about male-to-male and male relationships. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly um, I don't know if you agree, but, I mean, that's my feeling. Yeah, I think for the most part I do, you know. But, um, again, a younger generation might see things differently. Well, I think that probably is the case. I mean, people my age, I'm in my early 70s now, um, when I was brought up, there were very defined roles, you know, that I remember having to be guarantor when my mother wanted to buy a car, and I was only 18. Right. Because she wasn't able to take out a loan. Yeah. She wouldn't, couldn't get a passport without her divorced husband allowing her to get, get a passport. You know, life was very different for women back then. And you, when you're brought up, you're brought up with the sort of mores that were in your family. So you get a whole lot of ideas about defined roles, and they're very, very hard to shake off, very hard to shake off. You know, us older people finding them all the time. I still open the doors for women. I still walk on the on the right hand side when we're walking in the street. If I'm walking with a woman, woman, I still say thank you. I still send thank you cards to people. I write little letters. You know, if they've invited me to dinner, thanking them. You know, it's a generational thing. Wow. <laughs> you know, don't you say? Don't you? I don't know. Do you open doors for, for women if um. You with them? No, I close them. <laughs> <laughs> what no, an uncouth man. No, I, yeah, no, I do. I was brought up that way too, so I have a lot of those habits myself. But um, um, I don't see that with the younger generation. I don't see that. As a, I don't mix with it. I don't have any younger generational friends anymore. I mean, yeah. my family's all now dead, and um, the closest I have is uh, cousins. I suppose they're in their teens who live in Chicago, who I've never actually ever met. Um, so I don't get to see when I was lecturing at university I didn't get to see much of their social life I just saw them as students and we had you know that sort of uh, relationship but I didn't get to see how they interact with each other without me around so I don't really know what they do oh they just slap each other at the Oscars yeah. and, and that's one of the reasons <laughs> that's one of the reasons I don't write contemporary books because I, I have no idea right. about what's going on well, that could be an idea for a new new series. You could be uh, brought back into the future. <laughs> I could write about a, a, a grumpy old man trying to negotiate his way yeah. through modern society. Yeah. That would plenty of experience with that. Yeah. Um, I went to a shop recently, um, a big department store, and I wanted to buy something, and it was seventeen dollars fifty. And I gave the girl twenty two dollars fifty, and she pulled out a cal- calculator. Oh. <laughs> Good Lord. And I said, all I want is a $5 note, please. <laughs> and she pulled out a car. And I just thought, well, this, this is really indicative of how things have changed. And I'm not saying it's better or worse or anything like that. It's just that when I add up, I don't use my a calculator. I still do it on a piece of paper and a pencil or in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's how we do it. You know, so we make it. But I'm sure my grandparents were exactly the same. I'm sure they shook their heads over mm-hmm. my mother and her brothers and sisters in their Bobby Socks and oh, 1940s I'm sure. and yeah. 34, you know. Yeah, yeah, we see that. I think that's just the way it goes, you know. So. Yeah. I, I, I remember my grandmother, um, when we came home from a trip, um, once she said, I can't wait to get inside and take my corset off and have a good old scratch. <laughs> and I thought, that's a real sign of how different life is. <laughs> 
I always like to get in and get a good scratch myself. Well, some things never change and some things never stay the same, I guess. (laughs) Well, Garrick, we are out of time, but it's been a great show. And now the book you have to go out and get is called Servants of the Crown, and it's The Turkish Pretender. So, And the author has been a guest, Garrick Jones. Thank you for being here. It's been my pleasure, guys. I have really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.